Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis rarely gave interviews, and she never wrote a memoir. But the nearly 100 books that she worked with during her two decades as an editor yield fascinating insight into who she was. Today I'm going to be speaking with William Kuhn about reading Jackie, her autobiography and books. Hi, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. I started out as an academic, um, so I was trained as a historian. I did a PhD in history, um, and my field was the Victorian monarchy in Britain. And I wrote a dissertation on that um, on that subject, uh, and uh, ended up teaching for 15 years at a liberal liberal college in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, called Carthage. And, you know, I slowly started kind of moving away from academic writing uh, when I uh, wrote a kind of a biography of two Victorian courtiers called Henry and Mary Ponsonby. And that book was the first that made me see that um, possibly the kind of writing that I enjoyed doing uh, was really more for a kind of a broader educated public than for academics, uh, because academics tend to be interested in a set of more narrow, more focused uh, academic debates. And so it was really that kind of book that kind of pushed me in the direction um, toward, you know, the kind of work I've been doing recently and away from academic writing. So what drew you to Jackie, exactly? Well, the book that I had done after um, Henry and Mary Huntsby was a biography of a Victorian prime minister uh, called Benjamin Disraeli. And um, the kind of the standard authority on Benjamin Disraeli uh, had written back in the 1960s, oh, well, Disraeli wrote a bunch of cheap novels, which he just used to raise money, and they're, you know, they're totally forgettable. And what we have to do to focus on the great man is to focus on his great parliamentary speeches and his life in politics. And I thought, well, hang on a second. <laughs> I wonder what those novels are like. Um, so I went to the novels that this guy called Cheap and Forgettable and just found a real wealth of um, information about his, uh, about his life. Uh, and, and the... the and the idea behind the book that I ended up doing on Disraeli was essentially that these books were a key to his biography that um, people hadn't, hadn't seen before. And after I finished that book, and I was kind of looking around for, um, for a new project, um, I came across the exhibition catalog, which Hamish Bull put together when he was uh, doing the exhibition on Jackie's dresses at the Kennedy Library, which eventually went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, I think that would have been 
I don't know exactly what the year that would, would have been. I think it was 2003, late, 2004. Okay, there. yeah, I'm talking to a Jackie expert who says <laughs> those facts at her fingertips. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, okay, so I was looking at that exhibition catalog from 2003, 2004, and that was the first time that it seemed to me that the essays in the exhibition catalog were taking Jackie seriously as an intellect. Um, and in particular, it seemed to me that they were looking at the clothes and the clothes that she commissioned as sort of works of art that had been designed and commissioned by somebody who's really intelligent about the history of dress. And I thought, wow, you know, um, maybe there's this whole dimension of Jackie that, you know, I'd never really thought of before. And then that was all the first time that I'd really come across any detailed mention of her publishing career. And I looked into that a little bit further and I thought, hey, why couldn't I do with her what I'd essentially done with Disraeli, which was a collection of books is key to a person's identity. And you know, with Disraeli it was a little bit different, like, different because he wrote these dozen novels, uh, whereas with Jackie she commissioned um, just under 100 books as an editor. But the principle is the same, that there was a kind of a, a thinking and designing hand uh, behind the commissioning of these books, and that that thinking and designing hand or that that you know, that, that mind that conceived the, these books and helped um, bring them to publication was essentially a key to her personality or a dimension of her personality that hadn't been looked at before in the, in the biographies that had been done of her. Right. We're obviously going to delve into that in much greater detail, but I want to start at the very beginning of reading Jackie with your author's note, because you explicitly state something that I think a lot of biographers, particularly biographers of female subjects, privately deal with, uh, and that's the matter of the subject's name. How did you settle on calling her Jackie in your text? Well, um... That has a kind of a that has a kind of an interesting uh, an interesting kind of history. Um, I think first of all, there's a kind of a there's a kind of a sexism which has been written into biography in the in the past, which you just kind of referred to in in your question, which is that um, men get referred to uh, by their last names, and men, and women are given an almost an immediate and instinctive diminutive. They're referred to by their first names. So, biography of President Kennedy would call him Kennedy throughout, rather than Jack. <laughs> and um, a biography of a female figure is is always one in which you know you begin with call by calling her first name. And I really didn't want to kind of um, replicate that kind of sexism. I didn't, you know, I didn't want to go forward without challenging that. But on the other hand, it seemed to me kind of um, unfair to call her uh, Mrs. Kennedy or Mrs. Onassis when that kind of would emphasize the last names of these two husbands when in fact the publishing career and the publishing achievements were things that she did on her own uh, when she was not married to either one of them and when she was in some sense free from the shackles of those marriages. Um, Onassis particularly uh, uh, prevented her from working 
and it was only with his death that she was able to explore, or she was able to explore some career options that she kind of wanted to explore even before he died. So calling her Mrs. Onassis or Mrs. Kennedy didn't seem right either, uh, because she's got a lot of you know cultural recognition um, just there with the first name. But I wanted to put that author's note there that I was aware of a kind of inherent sexism in the writing of biographies. Um, I really appreciate it. As someone who's read a lot of biographies about her, that I'd never seen that done before, and it caught my attention right away, and I thought it was an excellent step forward in many respects. Well, it, it's interesting because there's, there's, a further, there's a further dimension to this, which is that um, I met uh, Jackie's friend, Nancy Tuckerman, mm-hmm. through the context that I had at Doubleday because Doubleday had commissioned this biography. So I had through them some introductions to some people in Jackie's world that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And um, Nancy Tuckerman has not cooperated with a lot of biographers before. So it was a real treat to be able to talk to her about Jackie. And she read um, my first draft and one of the things she was angry about was the fact that I hadn't referred to her as Mrs. Kennedy. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I had to have this sort of conversation with her on the telephone. And I said, you know, I've, I've agonized about this, Nancy, but uh, I just don't think Mrs. Kennedy is right for a publishing career that took place after she was already Mrs. Arnassus and that she was doing on, on her own. And so it was Nan Feliz, um, the editor of my book and a great, you know, power in the publishing world who said, well, why did you put that author's note up front about, you know, about the issues that you've been dealing with? So I really have to um, give credit both to Nancy Tuckerman and Nan Feliz for, for that author's note as well. <laughs> Well, you've hit upon my next question, which was that you were able to conduct interviews with a lot of Jackie's intimates like Nancy Tuckerman, people who don't really give interviews about her. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a bit about the sources that you had for the book? Well, mostly the sources were um, mostly the sources were her authors and um, people, her authors who were still alive and people who worked with her at Doubleday uh, when, uh, when she was there. Um, I don't think I had anybody from the Viking period, but I mean, I had some introductions to the Doubleday people simply because my book was commissioned by Doubleday. So Steve Rubin, who was president of the company when she was there, Bill Berry, who was uh, pretty high up in the company when she was there, and a number of other people who she worked with uh, were important uh, were important sources for me. Um, and then I, I talked to a lot of uh, I talked to a lot of people who were actually her authors and who could talk to me about the process of working on a book with Jackie um, and what that was like. And then, you know, I think partly because I had um, some academic training and as a historian, you're kind of trained to pay a lot of attention to text and, you know, to what can be learned from the written word as a kind of uh, a relic or um, an artifact of the past, I really wanted to try and take the book seriously. So I, 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 read, I read the books, and I tried to make the books uh, be as eloquent as they could be, too, about um, what she was like and what she was interested in. 
kind of editor was Jackie? Well, I think she um, she evolved over time. I, I think that in the in the early part of her career, um, she uh, was oftentimes an observer of the process rather than somebody who was involved in the day to day production of, of the books. In other words, um, toward the beginning of her career, she was oftentimes using her connections with interesting people in the outside world to bring in a book to um, the publishing house that would be edited um, more on a kind of a more kind of day-to-day basis or, or edited um, in a more detailed way by other uh, by other editors. But as she became um, more experienced, um, she was doing a lot of back even line editing herself. Um, I don't think she did that on every one of her books, but as she grew in confidence and as she um, she was uh, commissioning a broader range of books, you definitely sort of see a kind of a more detailed involvement with her, um, you know, on a line by line basis. Sometimes going through and challenging passages, asking for rewrites. Um, telling authors that what they've submitted isn't good enough and they've got to give it another try. Um, so I would say early on, she was a hands-off editor who was kind of learning the job. And then later on, she was very hands-on. She was very much involved. Uh, and people like, um, especially her younger authors, I mean, especially the people who were, who were beneath her in age, I think really felt that um, she was um, she was deeply involved in what they were doing. So, so David Sten and Elizabeth Crook, for example, um, you know, uh, recall getting their manuscripts back from her with her handwriting on every page, um, uh, saying, "Delete this. This is trite. Um, I'm tired of this image." <laughs> that kind of thing. So um, they as you know, kind of young authors really felt kind of um, a double blow from her. In other words, here was Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis writing on their manuscript, but here was also an editor who was telling them they had to redo stuff. <laughs> so um, I, I think that this, you can see from their perspective why that, that would have been a memorable experience to receive that manuscript back in the mail. You mentioned that Jackie... Um was a really good writer, but didn't feel that she had the talent to be a writer. How do you think that affected her as an editor? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't know why she didn't have more confidence in her own writing, because when you read some of the short fugitive pieces that she wrote for The New Yorker or introductions for... Um, Diana Breland exhibitions at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you can see that you're in the presence of a talented person who knows how to play around with language and um, make it fun to read and who clearly has some talent. Uh, That's also pretty abundantly clear, even from just like the simplest thank you notes that she she wrote. Um, When you, when people out these things that they've, they've got. And, you know, a lot of people have got letters of hers because 
people who she was, they kept them, and they would sometimes show me um, these letters. And she just had a, had a way with um, had a way with words. So um, I don't know why she precisely why she didn't take that um, further herself, but I think that her own talent as a writer made her alive to the talents of other writers. I mean, I think, you know, when you yourself sense that you're pretty good at something, then you pay close attention to other people who could do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe maybe if you're a good, you know, um, deep sea fisherman, you watch, you know, you watch closely what other deep sea fishermen do. Um, but I think her, you know, a sense of her own talent as a writer made her, made her very sensitive to the talents of, uh, of other writers. Um, it's possible that um, she, you know, that she would have found um, writing too, too exposing. And because, you know, when you're writing things, you're exposing yourself all the time. And uh, she was clearly a person who, even before the paparazzi got interested in her, she was clearly a person who really deeply guarded her privacy. And um, I think that would have been a real, you know, conflict for her as a writer because I think it, it probably would have been harder, hard for her to expose herself for publication over and over again um, in a way that a writer has to do. You call her a book geisha, which I love. <laughs> Can you explain why why you apply that to her? How do you think it's applicable? Well, yeah, I think she had a talent for also for just making other writers feel wonderful about themselves. And uh, a lot of her authors described the experience of being with her as one where they were completely at ease and she could somehow bring themselves out of themselves and, and to, to, talk, to talk about what they wanted to achieve, what they wanted to do in the book, what their ambition was for a, for a book. And um, I think that that's really what, you know, what a, what a geisha does. They, a geisha is, is, is sort of someone who's, who's highly skilled, in uh, making someone relax and making them feel good about themselves. And um, sometimes other women, other women would be kind of catty about this and they would say, oh, she was always kind of looking at men, um, you know, with her those wide eyes and she would say, oh, you're so brilliant, please go on and tell me some more. Um, but I think she was able to do this both with men and with women and that um, she was able um, to get people's minds off her own celebrity and uh, to dwell instead on what their gift was that she wanted to bring up in a book. And um, I think that therein lay her, lay her brilliance as an editor. Let's talk about the books a bit. Now that you mentioned that you read all of them, I want to know which one was your favorite. Um, well, there were some, there were some discoveries. I really liked The Power of Myth. Um, and I liked The Power of Myth um, 
partly because, you know, I had some background in anthropology as an undergraduate myself, and so Joseph Campbell talking about the history of culture was of interest to me. But I also just sort of, I just thought the whole concept of that that book, which is talking about um, the way in which myth uh, plays a role in everyone's lives, that you don't have to be kind of conventionally religious or a believer in uh, shamans or or anything like that to um, have uh, to have sort of a mythological figures play a role in your life. There's this kind of everyday quality of myth is is a kind of an interesting concept, and I think it also shows her consciousness that. Her own mythology, her own celebrity, the, the, the aura of a kind of sacredness around her was something that she was aware of, and that's why she was, she was so anxious to get Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell between hard covers when, when they started talking in these PBS interviews about this very subject, about um, how myth plays a role in everyone's everyday life. Um, there's also kind of a wonderful passage in that book where Bill Moyers, um, a longtime uh, committed journalist and somebody who had uh, worked in the Kennedy administration and also under LBJ, um, who uh, essentially interviewed uh, Campbell, who was um, oh, uh, kind of a Stage in some ways. I mean, he, he, he's a kind of a popularizer of the history of religions and and scholarly ideas in the history of religions to a kind of a broader broader public. And in the in the conversations between Campbell and Moyers, um, Moyers said, "Well, you know, you talk about myth as it's very as it's very accessible, but I think most people think of myth as." believed in by the Trobrian Islanders or ancient Greek uh, people or committed Christians. Can you ever tell me uh, of a sort of an example of being miscreated? And Campbell said, yes, um, at John F. Kennedy's funeral, when Jacqueline Kennedy stood up um, and led the country through that weekend of grief uh, after the kind of the Shotsky assassination. That is um, an example of a woman being trans, an ordinary woman being transformed into a goddess. And, I, you know, I, I looked at that with just sort of a sense of shock um, because she commissioned a book <laughs> that, um, that, that, you know, this conversation was taking place in. And um, it may not be in exactly those terms, but clearly... Um, she was aware of the fact that they were discussing things of which she had personal experience. And I don't think that means that, you know, uh, she, you know, she got up in the morning and sort of looked herself in the mirror and sort of said, hey, I'm a goddess. <laughs> but, I, mean, <laughs> I think that means that she was aware that she had gone unwillingly and involuntarily through a process which must have been hair 
fundraising for her, but which later on, after the fact, many decades later, a kind of a Smittish historian of religion could sort of say, this is a phenomenon where we see myths being created. And I think that, in some ways, that must have fascinated her. Um, and I think that book is a commentary on her life. And that, that's one of the kind of great things about reading through these books, which is to find um, these, these episodes in her life kind of commented on in these books. It's only just occurred to me, but do you think that, that that awareness of the importance of myth in some ways explains the inclusions of the photograph of Marilyn Monroe and Allure and the photograph of Maria Callas in the other Reland book? Totally, totally. I mean, I agree with you 100% on those. Um, because in, in many ways, in Allure, um, Diana Reland, who is coming at the same subject, but from a different angle, mm-hmm. which is kind of mythological female beauty. <laughs> we we have these notions of these these images of these women which are larger than just the the women themselves um, in that book. And she's trying to explore what have those images got that compel us. What is it that gives us a kind of an almost uh, a religious free zone when we look at a Marilyn Monroe picture or a, or a Maria Callas picture or or some of the other images which are which are in that book, which are kind of less household names, but of you know kind of famous famous models being uh, photographed by famous photographers. And um, I I do think Jackie was able to separate herself from her history with those women, and um, to acknowledge along with Diana Reland, Marilyn Monroe. Monroe is and pictures her pictures are some of the unforgettable images of the 20th century, and whatever connection that she had with my one-time husband is almost irrelevant to a consideration of the power that still remains in those images, and I think that's why she, as editor, didn't flinch uh, when uh, Diana Breland submitted those for the book. Um, there's a, there's one of my, one of the, one of my funniest finds was I was, I was looking at Diana Reland's papers in the New York Public Library and, um, there's a note from Vreeland to Jackie sort of saying, you know, I'm going to be going around trying to get pictures out of some of the most famous photographers in the world and, um, they're going to be asking me for, um, they're going to be asking me, you know, outrageous sums for these pictures for the book. And I really think I need a letter of introduction from you <laughs> to tell, you know, to tell them what I'm doing. And <laughs> the fact is that in fashion, Diana Vreeland was a bigger name even then than Anna Wintour is today. Everybody knew who she was. She needed no introduction whatsoever. And she's going to her editor, Jackie Onassis, and she's like, okay, I need a letter of introduction to you so that I can, you know, tell Lord Snowden that I want some of his pictures. Well, Lord Snowden knows all these people already. But, you know, nevertheless, Jackie dutifully wrote out a, a letter to whom it may concern. <laughs> this is Diana Vreeland, whom I have commissioned a book to write, um, to write a book on, you know, compelling images from fashion photography. Uh, and then she goes on and says, and she will be uh, including 
not only pictures from Vogue, but the work of the paparazzi. Um, and I hope you'll give her every, uh, every, uh, all help um, in doing this. You know, with all best wishes, Jacqueline Kennedy or Nassus. <laughs> and that, too, sort of seemed to me a wonderful kind of irony that here was Jackie proceeding the courts against Ron Galella to keep him at arm's length, and yet conceding in this letter of introduction uh, for Diana Breland that under some conditions, the work of paparazzi, she considered art. And she considered, you know, uh, she considered as, you know, uh, testamentary evidence uh, or documentary evidence of uh, mythological female beauty. Let's talk about um, the friendship that existed between Vreeland and Jackie Onassis, because they really kind of, they happened upon each other at the same time, and then they kind of sustained each other at really important times of their careers. I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, and that is, uh, that, I think that's the subject of a book right there. Yeah. Um, which would be, you know, uh, Vreeland and Jackie, um, and what was happening to them at that stage in their lives, because a lot of the early books that, um, that Jackie did are uh, Vreeland exhibitions from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And that was a very iffy um, stage in Vreeland's career because she'd been fired by Vogue in, I think, 71 or 72. And um, Jackie got with one of the subscribers to a fund uh, which... Uh, was collected by Breland's friends to pay her salary over at the Metropolitan Museum of Art because um, the Metropolitan Museum didn't have any money or wouldn't commit any money to having Breland as their special curator, which was the title that she had at the Costume Institute um, after she left Vogue. So, first of all, Jackie made it financially possible for her to go over there. And then Breland gave ideas for all these early books um, to Jackie um, when she was getting started out in her publishing career. So there was a really important symbiotic relationship there. Um, Breland was the older woman, obviously, who had more experience, and I think Jackie really looked up to her. Um, But, you know, Breland also counted on... Um, the eclat of Jackie's name and her showing up at the parties of the Costume Institute to really um, make the Costume Institute go um, after Breland became a special curator there. So um, their success was really kind of inter- interrelated. Um, there's also a, a kind of a touching thing, which I think at the end of the biography the main biography which has been done of Breland, um, and I've forgotten the name of it, um, but um, essentially the the log of the doorman um, in Breland's building um, when she was dying is the evidence that um, Jackie was the last visitor from the outside to see her alive before she died. Um, so she was continuing to call on her even in the period um, right before right before she died. So I think the two women were close um, and close at the end of Breland's life in the way that they never were um, when Jackie was in the White House. Because, you know, famously, Breland 
gave some advice to Jackie about her clothes when she first went to the White House, and there was some correspondence between them. But the real closeness came 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 later when Jackie was in New York, starting out her publishing career. Another theme that emerged in addition to the importance of myth uh, through the books that she published was, especially early on, there were a number of books about women who struggled against being economically dependent upon men. Yeah. Do you think that reflected any of Jackie's experience? Oh, totally. I mean, I, I really do. I mean, that, I mean, that, I think that it had to have reflected her experience. Um, you know, she gave so few interviews to the press. Um, in the period after the White House. She didn't talk to the press very much inside the White House, but after the White House, practically not at all. And um, the only two two of the, uh, interviews that I can think of that she gave are one to Publishers Weekly, where she talked a little bit about what she was working on, and two to Gloria Steinem at Ms. Magazine. <clears throat> and I don't think she would have allowed her picture to be on the cover of Ms. And nor would she have allowed herself to be interviewed by Gloria Steinem if she wasn't a hundred percent behind um, the kind of the politics of the magazine at that at that time, which was all about empowering women um, to uh, go out and work on their own if they could, if they wanted to, and um, establish economic independence from uh, from men. Um, you know, it's hard, you know, kind of growing up um, in, or you know, being as conscious of the of social world as, as we are now, to really um, recapture that era when it was considered, you know, um, almost scandalous for women to work. I mean, my, I'm, I was born in 1957, so, uh, and my mother, um, Jackie sort of saying, oh, 
um, all my opinions come from my husband, and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't ever do anything but what he said. I, you know, <clears throat> I think that was very characteristic of women's views of the early of the early sixties, and I think she had a hundred and eighty degree turn from that uh, in the seventies when she when she went when she went uh, when she went to work, and um, either that. She, Either she had a 180-degree turn or people have missed the dimension of kind of irony and sarcasm and playfulness that she probably sometimes used with Schlesinger, who was an old friend, uh, who's an old friend of hers. So I, I don't know how I'd, how I'd take that. But, I mean, certainly um, that was not those, those, that language she used with Schlesinger about taking all her political opinions from her husband was not the last word in her life on uh, her 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 attitude for the relations between the sexes. Mm-hmm. I think this came out a little bit in the Schlesinger tapes as well, but she had a bit of a naughty streak, right? I think she did. I think she did, and. Um, what you know? What people remembered about her in the office was that she was a big tease, um, and um, that uh, that <clears throat> she would, you know, she'd find people in weak spots, and she could tease pretty hard <laughs> sometimes. Um, I'm not seeing any examples of it off the top of my head, but I mean, there is one thing where Bill Barry, who was um, who was pretty high up. Um, manager uh, at uh, um, at Doubleday was having a conversation with um, the religion editor um, about a book which they just brought out, which had made um, uh, the uh, made one of the figures in the Roman Catholic hierarchy in New York very angry, and so angry that he denounced the book on the front page of the New York Times, and they were just delighted because this was free publicity for their book. Um, and they were discussing this kind of earnestly out, out in the hall about whether or not they were going to get into tr- trouble for it. And um, Jackie looked over her, her glasses at them and uh, blew out some smoke from a cigarette she was smoking, and she said, you two bad Catholic boys. <laughs> And, um, that, you know, that was just not the image of Jackie I had in my mind, you know, saintly Jackie, before I, you know, before I started writing this book. And, um, it, you know, it's extremely endearing. She's the kind of person you feel like you'd like to go and have a drink with. <laughs> a lot of her books were really intended more for beauty than for profitability, it seemed like. But I think we would be remiss if we did not mention Moonwalk with Michael Jackson. Can you talk a bit about that bizarreness? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, she was aware that a number of the books that she did were not going to be um, bestsellers. But um, that she, you know, when she met a kind of a curator, a retired curator of European art from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, John Popetti, and asked him to write his memoirs that. That was not going to sell thousands and thousands of copies. Um, it was the kind of thing that she was interested in, and um, she liked art appreciation of all sorts, but it wasn't a big commercial topic. And she did a number of books that were like that. And um, so I think she felt 
that um, to compensate for some of these kind of more narrow interest uh, books that she was bringing out, she had to be of some value to the company um, in terms of bringing, bringing in bigger, bigger more, more potentially profitable um, subjects. And um, someone came to her with the idea that um, they should commission a book from Michael Jackson and she should be the editor. And um, I don't think she loved the idea, um, but it was kind of a quid pro quo for her, you know, for her being a publisher. And she went out and met him, and I don't think she disliked him. Um, I think they got along. They got along. Uh, they got along fine. But she was certainly, um, she was certainly in a kind of a difficult situation with the first draft of his book, which. Um, which he submitted, which was essentially a series of press releases kind of strung together about the various music awards that he'd gotten. And she then had to go to him and said, and say, look, Michael, you and I are both going to be um, at the end of uh, a lot of pretty brutal criticism if you don't kind of open up a little bit more with this book. And say some things about difficult passages in your life, as well as all this kind of public relations about your awards. Everybody knows you're brilliant, but come on now, what's it like to be black in the entertainment industry? Um, uh, what was it like to lose your childhood to, um, you know, to your career? And um, so she sent him back to rewrite it. And uh, I think that... Um, it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a, uh, a heavyweight book, but I think it's, it's probably better for um, her, his, her forcing him to send in a second draft. And I also think that if you read that book, um, there's, he, there's a lot of incredibly revealing things that he puts in about himself um, in the, in the book, which he may not have been intended to be as revealing as, as they were. So how does the woman that you expected to find differ from the woman that you found when you were doing your research on Jackie? Um, I found she was a lot more like people I, I know and a lot like the kind of, a lot less like the distant celebrity that I expected her to be. Mm-hmm. Um, She's more like people I know in that um, she was happy sitting on a sofa with her books um, and being by herself. Um, and that dimension of her personality was not very clear before I before I started the book. Her shyness came through um, a lot more strongly to me than uh, than I'd expected it to. I, I don't think I knew anything about her shyness before I, I started with it. But person, people who love books are oftentimes more comfortable with books than they are with people. And um, I would not say that, you know, her, her métier was actually to be a people person. I don't think she walked easily into a crowded room and could go around talking to people. And that's not just because of the effect her celebrity had on people. I think that was true back when she was just the candidate's wife as well, that she just didn't find 
shouldn't um, be on every with pen and paper. Um, that shyness, um, that um, slightly loner quality about her is something you find a lot in um, in writers, in academics, in teachers sometimes, and um, that's, uh, I, that, that was just something I was surprised to find, and it made her much more approachable to me. It made her seem like it wouldn't have been so hard to sit down with her and have a discussion um, and to have a discussion about a have a discussion about a book. Whereas I think beforehand, I just assumed that we would we'd have had, we would have had nothing in common. And I don't. I mean, I haven't finished the book. I don't think that's true. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about reading Jackie, which is now in paperback. Any idea what you'll be writing next? Um, well, I've got uh, got a novel coming out um, later this year called Mrs. Queen Takes the Train, which is a little comic, a little comic romance um, about the Queen leaving Buckingham Palace uh, one time when she, she doesn't have that on her schedule, and she kind of disappears and. Six of the court, her courtiers have got to go after her um, before the tabloids and the secret services find out that she's missing. Um, so it was very much something inspired by um, Alan Bennett's Uncommon Reader, which I loved. And uh, I, because I've spent some time writing the history of the monarchy and um, the history of Victorian courtiers, I felt like I had a kind of a an inside view on on some dimensions of um, palace life that maybe not everybody else would have, and so I tried to put that together with a little comic, uh, inventive story about what might happen if the queen left the palace one day um, without her usual security escort, and uh, so that's the result. Um, and uh, I hope people like it. I mean, it was it was fun to write and really different from writing the Jackie book because I I didn't have to have have footnotes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Definitely an advantage of fiction. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. listening to an interview with author William Kuhn about reading Jackie, which is now out in paperback. I'm Olaine Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.